Do you uh, know what a paradigm shift is? Um, a paradigm shift is a new way of looking at old things. Um, Ptolemy, a famous, the famous Egyptian astronomer, believed that the earth was the center of the universe at one time. But Copernicus created a paradigm shift. Um, he created that paradigm shift by placing the sun at the center of the universe. And all of a sudden, <laughs> everything changed. And it was a new way of thinking about an old thing. And it changed everything. When our paradigms shift, <laughs> our attitudes and the ways uh, we act, they also shift. Stephen Covey in the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People described a mini paradigm shift that he experienced one Sunday morning while riding a subway in New York City. He said this, people were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm, it was peaceful scene. And suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car and the children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to Covey, closed his eyes, and apparently oblivious, became oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing uh, people's newspapers. It was very disturbing. Yet the man sitting next to Stephen Covey, Covey he, he did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. Mr. Covey uh, couldn't believe this man could be so insensitive to other passengers that he would let his, his children just run wild and do nothing about it. Everyone in the subway car, you know, felt irritated, bothered. Finally, Covey uh, turned to the man and said, Sir, listen, your, your children are really disturbing a, a lot of people. I wonder if you could just control them a little bit more. The man lifted his gaze as if to be aware of the situation for the first time, and then he said softly, oh, uh, I guess you're right. I guess I should do something about it. <laughs> I'm sorry, we, we just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago, and I don't know what to think. And I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Stephen Covey said that all of a sudden he had a, a paradigm shift. What changed? <laughs> was it the children? I mean, did the man rein back his rambunctious children? No. Absolutely nothing changed except in Stephen Covey. Uh, his way of looking at those children and his way of looking at that father suddenly changed. He had a paradigm shift. Back in June... 2021, Time Magazine carried an article with the title, The Pandemic Revealed How Much We Hate Our Jobs. <laughs> now we have a chance to reinvent work. I'm guessing after the past two years that uh, that title there uh, of that article really doesn't surprise anyone probably here this morning. Um, um, is it a surprise to you that uh, uh, people have said that they hate their jobs? They hate work. The question is, what can we do? How, how can we reinvent our work 
you know, so that we no longer have to approach it with a sense of dread and a sense of hate. Uh, and I would suggest that what needs to happen for all of us is a paradigm shift. This morning, we are wrapping up our five-week series uh, that we've titled God at Work. And throughout this series, we have simply been taking um, a look at what the Bible says about our work and about our vocations. So what does God intend for us and our, our jobs? Um, how do you connect your Sunday faith to your Monday work? In the first century, I got to tell you, Christian slaves had even less reason to be enthusiastic about the work than, than, than we do. <laughs> if anyone could describe hating their jobs, my guess is that those Christian slaves in that first century could do that. But Paul in Titus chapter 2 provides them with a paradigm shift, a new way of looking at their work. He gave them a way of, uh, to grasp uh, a glimpse of glory amid the, the grind, a way to make their work sacred. I invite you to turn with me to Titus, little book of Titus chapter 2. Um, Titus comes right after 1st and 2nd Timothy. You'll find it there. It's one of the pastoral letters. Um, and there in Titus chapter 2, we're going to look at this uh, couple of verses here. Now, let me give you a little context um, so we understand what's happening here in, in, in Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing to this man named Titus, uh, one of Paul's mentees and early companions, uh, evidently, on one of his missionary journeys, Paul had left Titus uh, there in Crete uh, to pastor the church that they had planted um, and to continue on with the ministry. Now, Crete was an island um, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and it was notorious <laughs> um, for um, uh, lying and for corruption and, and, and for violence and sexual sin. In fact, the, the Greek word for one who is a liar originates from the word to be a Cretan. <laughs> so this little letter that, that Paul is writing here to Titus, um, is he, he's given him instructions on how to restore order um, in the churches that they had planted and, and what to teach these different groups that are in the new church, including older men and women, including younger men and women, and also Christian slaves. Now, again, before we get into the passage, I, I need to also revisit something that uh, uh, Pastor Jay talked about a couple of weeks ago and remind us that slavery in the first century, what it was like. Because when you and I, when, when we think of slavery, automatically what comes to mind is we think of 17th, 18th, 19th century New World slavery, race-based, African slavery, which the Bible unconditionally condemns. Okay, let me make that clear. But that was not the kind of slavery that Paul refers to there in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament. Timothy Keller said this. He writes, the historian Murray Harris wrote a book about what slavery was like in the first century Greco-Roman world. He says, in the Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. 
They looked and lived like everyone else and were never segregated off from the rest of society in any way. Number two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases and many times held high managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves usually poor and accured enough personal capital to buy themselves out. And number four, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century. Most expected to be manumitted about, uh, after about 10 years or by their late 30s at the latest. See, slavery in, in the first century that Paul is talking about here, slavery was more like indentured servanthood. In fact, depending upon their training and background and ability, a slave in Paul's world might have served as a tutor, might have served as a doctor, might have served as a manager of a household or of a, of a family business. And so Paul wants those slaves who have become believers, who have become Christ followers, he wants them to know how to act in their role as indentured servants. Paul doesn't simply want them to adopt the, the secular rules of behavior the way that uh, most people expected the slaves to behave in those households, but insists, rather, that through Christ, the slave should be different should be reformed. Paul is, see, he's more concerned about their character and behavior than their social standing. And so Paul introduces them to a paradigm shift, a different way of looking at what they do, a new way of looking at their work. In fact, look with me at Paul's instructions here. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything they are to, uh, in everything, they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let me ask you, do you, <laughs> do you ever feel uh, overworked at your job, over-regulated, over-leisured, under-benefited, um, I mean, what would Paul tell you? And what does he tell these Christian slaves? Paul says, listen, do your work in such a way, do you catch this? Do your work in such a way that you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's right there at the end of verse 10. In everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So what's that mean, um, to adorn the doctrine of God? Well, <laughs> um, been to a jewelry store lately? Um, I, 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 you go to a jewelry store, and a jeweler wants to show you how uh, clear and, and beautiful a diamond is. What do they do? They, they, they take that diamond out, and, or diamonds, and they take out a piece of black velvet, right, cloth, and they lay that diamond on top of that black velvet background with light shining and letting that diamond just blaze, Right? They will adorn or arrange the jewels in order to display their beauty, to show off their glory. See, the gospel, Paul says, 
The gospel is the jewel, and the life, the actions uh, of the Christ follower is to be the setting, the, the, the black velvet background on which the, uh, the gospel jewel is displayed in all of its glory, in all of its beauty. <laughs> Eugene Peterson in the message translates these two verses this way. That's what he says. Guide slaves into being loyal workers, a bonus to their masters. No backtalk, no petty thievery. Then their good character will shine through their actions, adding luster to the teaching of our Savior God. So then how, how do we adorn the doctrine of God in our, in our work? How do we add luster <laughs> uh, to the gospel? It's by how we do our work. It's the attitudes that we carry into our work. Three ways in, in our jobs that we are to add luster to the gospel. I want you to see this. The first is by working hard. Look at Paul's instructions here. Again, verse 9, very beginning. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing. That word submissive here means to be subject to. Um, and it was oftentimes used uh, of a, of a, uh, by the military to designate a soldier's relationship to his superior officers. It's a willingness um, to put yourself um, under the authority of your bosses and, and, and to respect them, to spec respect their role. And we are to work in such a way, Paul says here, that we please our employers. Um, in fact, in the, his letter to the Romans, uh, Paul uses the same Greek word when he urges believers to present your bodies a living sacrifice, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable or pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable or pleasing and perfect. See, in a like manner, Paul instructs us, we are to work hard at our jobs. We are to do our jobs in such a way that's good, acceptable to our bosses, that's pleasing to our employers. We're to do our jobs with a sense of excellence. Why? Because, listen, um, we are not just submitting to our employer we're also submitting in that way to our Lord. Author and educator Howard Hendricks years ago sat in a plane. I was delayed for takeoff after a long, long wait. Uh, the passengers became more and more irritated, and Hendricks noticed how gracious one of the flight attendants was as she spoke to each of those <laughs> uh, disgruntled passengers. After the plane finally took off, uh, Hendricks told the flight attendant how amazed he was um, at her poise and at her, her self-control and said he wanted to write a letter of commendation uh, for her to the airline. The flight attendant replied that she didn't work for the airline company, but for Jesus Christ. She said that she, just before going to work, uh, she and her husband prayed together that she would be a good representative for Christ. See, that's the kind of attitude that, that the Apostle Paul is urging these Christian slaves and urging us 
to have in our work when we go to the office or, uh, you know, to your cubicle. <laughs> By submitting to your employer because of your love and gratitude uh, to Jesus Christ, you are also submitting to the Lord. And in doing so, what happens is you are adorning the doctrine of God. You are adding luster to the gospel. Next, Paul says, work honorably. Look at the next phrase he has here in verse 9. He says, um, they're well-pleasing, not argumentative. <laughs> um, not argumentative. Uh, NIV translates it, uh, not to talk back. Anybody ever experienced anyone talking back to you? Um, Paul, is, he, he, what he's thinking of here is the, the, the typical behavior uh, of the slaves, the ill-mannered, unruly, rebellious slaves. Um, you know, think about it. Isn't one of the first ways people who are under authority usually express their rebellion is through verbal um, challenges or sarcastic comments, you know, said underneath their breath? That grumbling? <laughs> Paul tells he slays. Instead, they're to be polite. They're to be respectful. They are to work honorably. It was his first day on the job. He was a, a, a new clerk in the greens good uh, department of a, of a supermarket. A lady came up to him and said she wanted to buy a half a head of lettuce. <laughs> uh, young lad said, uh, well, he tried to dissuade her uh, from that goal, but she persisted. Finally, he said, listen, I'm going to have to go back and, and, and talk to the manager. Uh, he went to the rear of the store um, to talk to the manager, but he, he didn't notice that the woman was following him, behind him, uh, right behind him as he went back to talk to the manager. When he got back to the store, he said to the manager, hey, there's some stupid old bag out there that wants to buy a half a head of lettuce. What should I tell her? Seeing the horrified look on the face of the manager, he turned about and Around it, and seeing the woman, suddenly he, he had, and this nice lady, she wants to buy the other half of the head of lettuce. So will that be all right? <laughs> uh, considerably relieved, um, the manager said, oh, yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd be fine. Later in the day, the, the manager came up to the boy, and he uh, congratulated him on his quick thinking, and then he asked him, son, where are you from? The boy said, I'm from Toronto, Canada, the home of beautiful hockey players and ugly women. The manager looked at him and said, well, my wife is from Toronto. <laughs> the boy said, oh, and what team does she play for? <laughs> we laugh, but, you know, we, we understand that talking back it can get us so easily into trouble, <laughs> not only, uh, you know, at home, but also in our workplaces. Being argumentative is, is almost a way of life for many people. And I got to tell you, unfortunately, it also includes Christians, Christ followers. Now, let me make it clear here. This does not, Paul here is not saying that a believer should not stand up for their convictions, okay? Now, Paul, Paul here, he's talking about being a bad witness. He's, he's talking about the fact that uh, when, we, when we talk back, to our bosses, that we end up ruining our, our witness for Christ. George Duncan in Every Day, Will, uh, Every Day with Jesus said, to say what is untrue, what is unkind, or to say it unkindly 
constitutes failure in Christian living and Christian witness. Finally, Paul instructs us to work honestly. Uh, Do you know that according to the U.S. Department of Commerce, employee dishonesty costs American businesses over $50 billion annually? The U.S. Chamber of Commerce estimates that 75% of all employees steal at least once, and at and at half of these uh, steal uh, more than once. They steal again and again. The chamber also reports that one of every three businesses' failures are the direct result of employee theft. Do you remember what the Cretans, uh, what I said earlier that they were famous for? They were famous for being liars and for being evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And after reading my report, I wonder if that might be said of U.S. workers as well. Not honest. I, I don't know if, if you're aware. Did you read this past week of, um, uh, of the couple from Minnetonka um, that's a, that is accused um, allegedly of stealing over $500,000 in merchandise from Nordstrom's? which happened to be a store that they worked for in. <laughs> Amazing. Now, it doesn't have to be that grandiose, that large a number. But Paul says, listen, that should not be us as Christ followers in our workplaces from our employers. We should not pilfer, but rather we should show good faith, he says. As mentioned previously, uh, you know, the, the uh, slaves of that first century, a lot of them managed their, their uh, master's business interests. And, and, and they were responsible for the money that was all involved in, in that business. And Paul here, he's saying to that Christian slave, he's saying they must not have their hands in the till. <laughs> they must not embezzle from their bosses. They not, it must not... Uh, uh, book the cook, <laughs> cook the books, excuse me. <laughs> book the cooks, too. No, instead, Paul says, that should not be what we as Christians are known for. Your faith should reflect in how you do your work with, with complete honesty and trustworthiness. That's how you adorn the gospel of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a front page article in San Francisco Chronicle about seven years ago about a metro transit uh, operator named Linda Wilson Allen. She loves people who rides her bus and, and she learns their names and she waits for them if they're late and then makes up the time later on in her routes. Evidently, the article told about, the, about her, she says, she's a woman in her uh, 80s named Ivy had some heavy grocery bags and was struggling with them, so Linda got out of her bus driver's seat to carry Ivy's bags back into her bus. And so now Ivy, this uh, woman in her 80s, she lets other buses pass um, her stop so she can ride Linda's bus. <laughs> Linda saw a woman named Tanya in a bus shelter. She could tell Tanya was new in the area and, and, and she was lost. 
It was almost Thanksgiving, so Linda said to Tanya, you're out here all by yourself. You don't know anybody. Come on over for Thanksgiving and kick it with me and the kids. <laughs> and now they're friends. Linda has built such a, lar- a little community of blessing on that bus that passengers offer Linda the use of their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and floral bouquets. When people found out she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniforms, they started giving them to her as presents. I mean, just think about it, what a thankless task driving a bus looks like in our world. I mean, cranky passengers, engine breakdowns, traffic jams, gum on the seats. (laughs) And you ask yourself, you know, how does this woman, how does Linda have such an attitude The Chronicle states, her mood is set at 2.30 a.m. when she gets down on her knees to pray for 30 minutes. There's a lot of talk, uh, there's a lot to talk about with the Lord, says Wilson Allen, a member of Glad Tidings Church in Haywood. When she gets to inner line, she always says, that's all, I love you, take care. (laughs) Have you ever heard a bus driver tell you, I love you? People wonder, where can I find the kingdom of God? I'll tell you where. You can find it on the number 45 bus riding through San Francisco. People wonder, where can I find the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ on display? (laughs) I'll tell you. It's behind the wheel of a metro transit vehicle there in San Francisco. Listen, I know if you're into bumper sticker um, philosophy, you've probably seen the axiom, I work, or I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Ever seen that one? Um, And for a vast um, portion of the workforce, I got to tell you, that's the best reason they can muster for going to their jobs each day. How about you? What is it that motivates you in your, your work? Is it a paycheck? Is it, hey, I might get a promotion? Is it the the praise of others around you for how great a job you're doing? Slaves in Paul's day were generally motivated by their hope for freedom. I mean, they figured that if they would follow their master's directions, if they would just keep their heads down and and do the work that they were supposed to do, uh, they might be able to purchase their freedom one day, maybe sooner than later. And although the Apostle Paul does not rule out such hope, he tells the Christian slave that his or her motivation is to be different. The Christian slave's motivation for working hard, for working honorably, for working honestly, is to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's not wrong to work hard, to do excellent work, to seek to please your employer in order to advance in in the company, to increase your wages. That's not wrong. And the right spirit, I mean, those motives are legitimate. But they should never be the Christian's highest objectives. Above all, far above all else, 
should be the sincere desire, even on the job, to do what is pleasing and acceptable to our Lord. See, the most important compensation for your work should not be praise or pay, but rather to display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of its beauty. One of the world's best-known paintings is the Anglis by Millet. The word Anglis means prayer. And in the painting, what you see are two peasants that are praying on their, on their fields. On the horizon, in the back, is a, is a church steeple. And we presume that the church bell is ringing to summon people to afternoon prayer. To understand the significance of the picture, however, you must study where the rays of the afternoon sun fall. They do not fall on the church steeple. They do not fall directly on the bowed heads of the man and woman in that painting. The rays of the sun fall on the wheelbarrow and the common tools at the couple's feet. Malay understood the significance of what the Apostle Paul wrote here to workers. Those peasants in their field not only honor God with their prayers, but they also honored him with their ordinary work. Can I ask you, what would change? What would change if you had a paradigm shift? What would change if you were to do your work in a way, you said, I'm going to do my work in a way that adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior? If you saw your work, as a sacred call, what might change? Let's pray. Father God, in your divine and gracious providence, you have placed each one of us in our current places of work and vocation. It's our heart's desire that we would glorify you to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ in and through our work. Lord, may each one of us do our work in such a way that we please you. And Lord Jesus, let our workplaces become a place of discipleship, a place where you are being formed in us more and more each day as we do our work. Use our lives, use our work to further your redemptive purposes in the world and to put Jesus Christ, your son, on display in all of his beauty. We pray these things in your son's precious name. Amen.